0: This is Andrea Miller, your host of the Her Story Speaks podcast. Today I'm revisiting an episode from last year where Pastor Emmy Kegler was my guest. This is such a powerful conversation and on the heels of Pride Month, I thought it would be a good one to reshare in case you missed it the first time. Even though Pride Month is over, the stories are not. Hearing Emmy's story and reading her book, One Coin Found, were truly a turning point for my own views, as I hope they are for you too. Also, be sure to check out the bonus Q&A episode Emmy and I recorded shortly after this interview aired last November, where Emmy and I dive a little deeper into some of the questions and biblical interpretations on the issues surrounding the LGBT community. Welcome to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. Before I dive into my introduction of today's guest, I just want to share some of my heart for the story I'm sharing today, as I know the subject we're diving into is a controversial one for many. When I started this podcast just over a year ago, my intention was for it to be a platform to share the stories of women that I knew and that the Lord had put in my path. As someone who has led women's Bible studies for so much of my adult Christian life, I've been blessed by so many women who have shared their stories with me. I wanted these stories to be shared with other women to encourage them as well. So the Lord put this podcast on my heart as a platform to share those stories and encourage other women in their faith journeys. What I didn't know when I started this podcast was just how much the stories I was going to hear and share would start to transform my own heart and theology. This past year, the Lord started pushing me to tell stories that didn't necessarily look like mine or fit in my comfortable faith box. And that is what today's episode is, an unexpected story the Lord put in my path that he's used to open my heart and start loving and including like Jesus did. Now, I know some of you will be tempted not to even listen to this episode or turn it off a few minutes in once you realize my guest is a gay pastor. But I'm asking you to get uncomfortable and listen to a story that may not look just like yours. As many of you know, the theme for season two of the podcast is courage over comfort. And the Lord has shown me that often that courage means listening, really listening to other stories that aren't written just like our own. If we're truly looking to Jesus as our example, he valued people's stories Jesus sat with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the women, the widows, the poor, and those on the margins. Jesus listened to and shared stories to teach us to give love and act like he did, especially those that don't look and act like we do. So with that, I'd like to introduce you to my guest today, Pastor Emmy Kegler. I have to say, Emmy is one of the most sincere, grace filled women I've had on the show, and our conversation was healing for me on so many levels. Today, Emmy shares her story of growing up, knowing she was different and didn't quite fit in with her peers. At age 14, Emmy realized she was gay. And as she says, this is not the answer I had wanted. I wanted a way to explain myself to others, a word that would identify why I was different, but also make it possible for me to fit in with them. As Emmy wrestled with her identity and faith, she was deeply wounded and excluded from the church she loved. So today, Emmy and I talk about her journey, her story, and how she healed from these wounds and set out to love the Bible and scripture and ultimately has led others to do the same. So much for joining me on the podcast today. We've had a little pre pre chat before here, and I thanked you. But again, I just really want to thank you for giving your time to tell your story today.
1: And thank you so much for making space, Andrea. I'm really, really honored um, by the opportunity. So thank you.
0: Well, I have read your book and your story. I just it was just very impactful for me for a variety of ways and not only your individual story of your life, but also just your wrestling with scripture and how the Bible has played out in your relationship with God. So we'll get into all of that. But before we do, I'm going to do something I haven't even done before, but I'm going to read an introduction for you that somebody else wrote. And that somebody was Rachel Held Evans, who we know has passed and has played a played a role in both of our lives. I know she was a friend of yours, correct? yeah. Yeah, and I would say her writings and influence have been one of the most impactful things kind of in my transformation of the last year of my life, and just, wow, just, if you haven't read any of her books, I highly suggest them, and I will link them up on your show notes if that's okay, but her words about you, I think, are just so, so good and rich, so I'm going to go ahead and read her introduction for you, okay? Thank you. Emmy Kegler is the best kind of weird. She is a Lutheran pastor with an impressive command of scripture and a passion for innovative worship. But what I love most about Emmy is her fierce, unrelenting love for her fellow oddballs, for religious burnouts and political misfits, for queer Christians seeking refuge and healing from toxic faith environments, for doubters and dreamers and wilderness wanderers, for recovering know it alls like me. Hers is a church that colors outside the lines, a church full of what she calls the impossibilities of God. And she goes on, but I think that just really, from what I know and I read about you, sums up so well, just just who you are. So like I said, you've got a story to tell, and I want to just get right into it. Is there anything else that you want to include about who you are, kind of the basics of where you live, your family, all of that, before we dig into your story? Sure. Okay. Uh,
1: I am the solo pastor of a small neighborhood church in northeast Minneapolis, Um, so it's a A long-term historical neighborhood it's often been the site of different immigrants coming into Minneapolis Um, over the past hundred years really different immigrant groups coming in and settling often in the neighborhood around the church that I serve so that's created a really interesting uh, transitional community but also a neighborhood that's deeply rooted in a lot of acts of service and caring for the neighbor Um, it's a very artistic community it's uh, up and coming in a lot of ways We're, we're dealing with gentrification issues so all of those affect a lot of what's going on within my little community church. Um, We also have a thriving food shelf. We do a lot of food and hunger ministries, particularly to care for people who are uh, working class who are on the edges of society and of life in those ways. Um, I live in East St. Paul, which is another um, interesting and historical neighborhood uh, just across town from where I serve, and I live there with my wife and our two dogs and cat, and if you hear any barking during this recording, it's because those two dogs are currently sleeping at my feet, and uh, if they decide that I've said something theologically inaccurate, they may interrupt. Um, They're quite used to being the audience for my sermons.
0: Well, that is quite all right. One of my (laughs) earlier podcasts I was doing in person, and my dog was asleep on the couch by us and i didn't even pay attention that she was snoring the entire time (laughs) so that podcast all throughout it i still have people i know that give me grief about it the dog is snoring and i'm like there's no way to edit this out and i don't want to have to redo that interview with her so yeah that was one of my (laughs) so i've learned not to have the dog in the room but if your dog if your dog barks, I am just, just fine with that.
1: <laughs> um, if I don't have them in the room, they will bark. So. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs>
0: okay, well, let's go ahead, Emmy, and just get started with your story. And I feel like the best place to start with stories is oftentimes your childhood, because that just molds so much of who you are and become. So can you take us back to your childhood, your parents, your upbringing in the church, all of that?
1: Yeah, I was raised in a really interesting household. My parents were 23 years apart. My mom is my dad's uh, third wife. And so I was raised as an only child in this household that was navigating a lot of understandings about identity, about faith convictions, about political convictions, about vocation. You know, what does it mean to be a stay at home mom? What does it mean to uh, be a retired parent who's still parenting? Uh, my dad retired when I was eight. And so then, you know, he's moving into that really interesting interesting stage of life post long-term career work while I'm, you know, on the cusp of being a preteen. So we did a lot of navigating as this three-person family unit about who we were and how we all related to each other. My parents both came out of uh, Catholic families. So my mom was raised and and did 13 years of private Catholic education out on the East Coast. And my dad was raised uh, in a Catholic family here in Minnesota. And when they met, they were both no longer practicing Catholics. Uh, I was baptized into the Catholic Church when I was, uh, just after I was born, partly because it was family tradition, partly because my dad's uh, older brother was a Catholic priest. And so even though we weren't connected to a congregation, it was pretty easy to slip me in under the radar and uh, get me baptized into the church. But we didn't uh, attend worship in any formal way until I was about four. And that was when I started showing um, some inclinations, let's say, to talk about spirituality, religion, God, and to be interested in those ideas and concepts in ways that my parents didn't feel they were maybe fully equipped to answer as lay people. Uh, Essentially, this, this kid has too many questions. Let's get her into some sort of formalized, institutional religious practice so that more people are responsible for her development and her understanding than just her parents. Um, so I did, you know, as a result, give my Sunday school teachers a bit of grief because I had a lot of questions.
0: <laughs> you sound uh, a little bit like my 10-year-old. Okay, <laughs> going,
1: moving along. A <laughs> little child. I, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah, so, so, yeah, we. my parents were interested in getting me back into church. Uh, it was clear after a couple of re-entry classes that the Catholic church was not going to be a suitable fit, uh, and so we ended up beginning in an episcopal congregation and that's not uncommon for a lot of post-catholic families Mm -hmm. uh especially on the east coast but often a bit here in the midwest to move into an episcopal church episcopal churches have uh, liturgies and worship practices that are often more familiar to people who have grown up in the Catholic Church um, but the theology is I would say more expansive um, okay
0: and you say in your book like your parents they raised you like it was okay to question to question things like it was a very like mm-hmm. pretty good open environment for a child with a lot of questions to be raised in.
1: Absolutely yeah they were very willing to engage with me and let me ask questions. Um, the congregation that I was raised in was very, Thank you, Hildegard. Um, uh, the congregation that I was raised in was very open to questions and very engaging, very willing to um, walk with people through different concepts, willing to engage you know, historical and contextual questions about scripture and about religious practice. So I was raised in a very um, supportive and open, you know, willing to question, willing to push some of the edges household.
0: Which is not necessarily common at all. I mean, no, especially that had to help so much the child that you were becoming. But I know that you, you share in your book at age 10, 11, 12, you started really feeling like something was wrong with you. That yeah, you were marked weird you were isolated so talk a little bit about that time of your life or a lot about it because <laughs> I think I think that's really impactful and I'm reading when I'm reading that part of your story I have a 10 year old and it just gives me such a heart for like, okay, you knew you were different.
1: Yeah, I knew that something was different about me and I kept trying to put different labels on that consistently to figure out like why do I feel so separate, so unusual, so weird? Why do I feel so different from all of my classmates? And there were times when my classmates identified that and would kind of um it, it wasn't often very direct bullying, but there was a lot of like shutting out. There was some cliques that I weren't I wasn't invited into just this discomfort or awkwardness around me. Like they knew something was also off about me. And I kept trying to figure out, you know, what's wrong with me? Like, what's the word that's going to explain why I feel so separate from everyone else? And, you know, what's the word that's gonna unlock where my people are? If I can figure out what the word is, if I can figure out what group I'm supposed to be a part of, I'll finally feel like I belong. And so I went through different processes of like, is it that, uh, at least the expression when I was 10, to 11, 12 was gifted and talented. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got, you know, segmented into the gifted and talented program. And I thought, okay, you know, now I'm with my other, you know, my fellow smart kids and we're all like too advanced to be mainstreamed with these other kids. We're going to really feel like a team and, and bond. To, nope, that wasn't it. Right. Okay. Um, maybe it's, you know, I, and I kept trying on all of these other different labels about like who who am I and what makes me so different and how can I finally feel like I belong?
0: And your mom, your parents noticed that too. They were trying to get help you fit in and do counseling,
1: just everything, right? Yep, exactly. Because, I, I mean, every every preteen and teenager goes through these really stressful, like, how do I identify who is my my squad? Where do I belong? Uh, I think every preteen and teenager goes through those questions. But for me, they were just unanswerable I couldn't mm-hmm. find a settled place and so yeah we had family counseling going on we had individual counseling going on for me we're just like something's not landing and I would get into these really intense um I mean depressions really what mm-hmm. it ended up being diagnosed as was a stress-induced depression which is like it's not a depression that just comes on out of nowhere which is what some clinical depression does mine seems to have like there's a particular event that then I can't bounce back from emotionally. Okay, Um,
0: and was the event like this, this time of your life, just not knowing who you are, not fitting in, is that what that means?
1: Yeah, there were a couple, um, so my grandfather died when I was eight, that was the first big family death. Um, My best friend moved away when I was nine and it seems like after that we see like an inability to bounce back in my trajectory. At at age 10, 11, 12 is when I start like really displaying um, signs of disconnect. Uh, I start really not engaging with friends and social situations. Um, We get, you know, poetry assignments in fifth grade writing, and I write all these, like, really sad poems. Like, you're supposed to write about your favorite color, and I write about Mm -hmm. gray. And so there's all these little weird instances of, like, something about me is not emotionally as resilient as other kids. Interesting.
0: Now, and I'm sorry if this sounds like a stupid question, but I'm just mm -hmm. trying to understand. So do you feel like at that time... I mean, it had to do, it had to have something to do with your sexuality, but did you know it at that time? Could you put your finger on that? Or that is that why there was the stress of not knowing?
1: No, I couldn't at all put my finger on it at 10, 11, 12. Um, okay. and, and even at that young of an age, and that was, um, let me think, 95, 96, 97. So there was some presence in culture, like 97's when Ellen DeGeneres comes out and that, you know, really catapults um the existence of gay women sort of to Mm -hmm. national attention in a way that maybe hadn't been attended to before and it it's it doesn't land for me like that's not a connection that I make that connection happens for me first when I'm 14 and okay I suddenly I just have this moment of realizing that I have um an attraction to a friend of mine that is not under the realm of platonic friendship and it just implodes my entire sense of self like I've been looking for a word to explain me oh but please don't let this Mm. be the word please don't let it be that I'm gay
0: and reading that I mean just hearing you say that and when I read it it's just like there's almost no words because it's just like that I just empathize with just that point that you were in in your life and that people that think like this is a choice, like why, why would you put yourself through that? And Mm -hmm. it just, it it put a lot of things in perspective, just reading your words. And one of the things I wrote, one of your quotes was this was not the answer I had wanted. I wanted a way to explain myself to others, a word that would identify why I was different, but also make it possible to fit in Mm -hmm. and how sad for a 14 year old. I mean, that's a hard enough age. But then that's the heaviness that you're, you're put put on. And it's just, so talk just a little bit more about kind of your feelings and wrestling and what to do with that. Like you said, that was a time when Ellen had just come out two years prior, a year after Matthew Shepard had died, Westboro Baptist was coming to fame. Like, so what did you do with all that?
1: Yeah, for a while, I really stuffed it down. For the first Mm. um, couple years after I came out to myself, I really didn't talk about it to other people because um, I think on a lot of levels, I just thought if I ignored it, it would go away.
0: Mm. Um,
1: And so I didn't, some people in the same context and having the same experiences will often like bring God or church into it and start praying like God change me make me not gay and i just decided i'm gonna act like this is not real i'm gonna you know i will select boys to have crushes on i will ask boys to dances i will go on dates like i can pretend that this is not real Mm. and of course i couldn't um And that became very evident very quickly that like no this is a reality in my life i can't just act as if everything is normal this is you know actually the thing that's going to unlock a lot of why i feel so different and distant and so it was when i was 16 that i started coming out um to my family and then to friends at my high school generally i was met with support my parents were um i think unsurprising considering the family structure i've described my parents were really supportive uh they you know their immediate response was no matter what we love you and they did say because they knew how hard i you know how stru- much i was struggling in social situations they did say maybe you shouldn't tell a lot of people right now mm-hmm. And of course, at 16, I had a very defiant sort of teenager attitude of like, you can't tell me what to do. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm sure this has nothing that doesn't speak to you at all as a right. parent of a 16 year old. <laughs> Most of my friends were relatively supportive or at least like accepted it and then moved on. There weren't a lot of questions or discussion about it. It was just like, okay, you know, I'm, thanks for telling me. And the friendship continued. There were a couple people who responded with uh, a lot of um, confusion or even outright Mm -hmm. condemnation. I'm just saying like, well, you know, that's not okay, like, you can't do that as a Christian. And I remember just sort of blinking at them, like, what What are you talking about? Like, people used to believe that, but people don't believe that anymore. Like, you've seen on the news, like, the only people who believe that are these, you know, sort of ignorant, you know, Westboro people who are showing up and protesting this poor kid's funeral. Like, what's wrong with you that you think this in that very sort of 16-year-old black and white view of the world? Like, well you
0: know, how can you believe this? Um, right. So that was a surprise to you. Yeah. Which your reaction, surprise. going back to that a little bit, like the reaction from your parents and some of your close friends, like that was surprisingly positive because how many kids come out to their parents and are practically disowned? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure you hear s- stories and have friends that that's the situation.
1: And Yeah. I, it's because I had such a positive experience, at least at that moment, um, and in that context, I do feel like I get to, it's almost my responsibility to carry the stories of people who don't have that Mm -hmm. kind of positive response because I can go into spaces where people, you know, say, well, if my kid, you know, comes out as gay, I'm, you know, they're out, you know, I, I, they can't live under my roof anymore. Mm -hmm. I can go into spaces Where people say that because I have this background of a family that did support me. I don't have to send in somebody who's had the trauma of being told they have to leave their parents' house or being told they can't go back to college because their parents won't pay for it or any of those other Mm -hmm. um, circumstances. I can enter into those spaces a little more easily and carry the stories of people who have been wounded by that kind of thinking. And
0: what would you, I don't know statistics on this, I don't know if you do, but I assume that that really contributes to a high rate of suicidal thoughts or acts and depression all of that what's the effect that you have come to know of kids that are not that are shut out by their parents or family
1: we're still putting together statistics on that especially how it relates to religious faith but Mm -hmm. we know that um especially for transgender or gender non-binary kids teens and young adults that rejection from the family is directly correlated with um, a higher rate of suicidal ideation Mm um we also know that um Generally speaking, being anywhere within the LGBTQ spectrum correlates with um, a slightly higher degree of mental illness, but it's really difficult at this point to suss out, you know, is that because of societal influences, you know, even if you have, you know, we've we've got nationally recognized same gender marriage rights, even in that context, there's um, what still... Uh, a handful of states in the United States where you can be fired for being openly gay. So how do you reconcile, like, is this mental illness directly correlated with being LGBT or is it part of the societal pressure? But we know for sure that rejection from a family, especially among um, trans and non-binary people is directly correlated with higher uh, suicidal ideation.
0: Mm -hmm. And so not only the rejection of the family is an issue Mm -hmm. faced. by many who come out fortunately you did not face that but what i think there so much more of your story is about the rejection and the wounds from the church and so mm-hmm. that's why i want to talk next about when you were in high school and your friend from school invited you to her youth group and you were part of this church for a couple years that you felt very loved and accepted and this is when you knew how old were you when you started going 16 or? 16 yeah okay. so it's,
1: it's this really interesting like two track in two-track train in my life at that point where um, in public school and at home, I'm coming out to my parents and my friends, and then I'm participating in this uh, Assembly of God youth group uh, in a suburb of the Twin Cities, and uh, I'm not out there. Yeah. And I insist at one point to my mother, you know, like, no, they accept everyone, they would accept me, and yet I never come out at that church. And I think there is, even though there's that defiant 16, 17-year-old who's saying, like, I know everything. I know that they would accept me and that they would love me. There was something underneath all that that suspected this is not going to be a safe place.
0: And I really, I mean, this is my opinion, but in your story, this is one of the saddest parts and chapters to me, that you felt so loved and accepted in this church, even though you Mm -hmm. really weren't able to show who you were, but then just how deeply wounded you end up being by the body of Christ. And so can you go into that? Like, I think it's a really important part of your story. Just a little, some more detail, just when you're in youth group, been there for a couple years, and then there's the youth pastor announces there's going to be a guest speaker. Mm -hmm. So take me back to that evening and tell me about that night, the sermon, what happened, all of that.
1: I was so excited for a guest speaker because um, it's a guest speaker from the local Assembly of God-approved seminary, and I had had this inclination when I was 14, 15, 16 that I felt a call to ministry. I felt pulled especially to the ministry of preaching and to presiding over uh, the Eucharistic sacrament, over communion. So in the context of my Episcopal upbringing, I had talked to our head priest about that. We discussed, you know, what that might look like for me as I pursued college and then post-college and that i'd let go of as i moved into this new congregation and denomination and now i was like oh wow i'm i'm feeling that excitement again of like mm. i might be able to pursue this feeling that i have where i think i might be also called to preach and and be part you know of god's church not just as a lay person but as a leader and so i felt so excited and this you know seminarian gets up and does his preaching. And it's such a different style than our normal youth minister. You know, our youth minister is very invitational, um, very, very compassionate and and welcoming and sort of inviting people into the story that he's experiencing. And this guy is immediately like yelling and worked up, um, passionate in a way that is very aggressive and demanding of us and talking about, you know, these evils that are assailing America's youth. And he starts with alcoholism, um, and I actually come from an alcoholic family, which is a really interesting context um, that, you know, I was raised in this really supportive family. We we're also really struggling with how addiction plays out in that. But so I'm like, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, like I've I've seen some after school specials. There's kids drinking. I never got invited to parties because I was a goody two shoes. Like I literally didn't think any of my friends in high school drank. And then I found out when I was in college that they were drinking, they just weren't inviting me to the parties because they thought I'd tell on them, <laughs> which to be fair, <laughs> They were probably right he about. Might it. have. <laughs> so, so he's you know the first you know this evil that is assailing America's youth is alcoholism and then binge drinking and I was like yeah he's right yeah I've I, I saw that Saved by the Bell episode I remember that part <laughs> with like the caffeine pills I bet it's the same thing you know like I bet there's some teens out there somewhere who are drinking yeah, it's just yeah. bad and then he moves into a um, combination condemnation of abortion and I'm like. Okay. I mean, maybe not where I would have gone, but all right. And then he's working his way up to this pinnacle of like the the main evil that is assaulting America's youth. And like, you have to remember, I'm at this is, um 17 Age seventeen, I've been wrestling with this feeling of being so distant from people for years, and I've felt like maybe being gay is part of the explanation to that. But I still feel like I see so much tension among other teenagers, where there's this in group and out group, where there's you know posturing and and this drama, and how do we relate to each other in ways that are really aggressive rather than being compassionate and welcoming? And I feel like, is he going to tap into this idea of like isolation or like who's better than you know this popular? race that we're all engaged in. And he's working his way up louder and louder to this final pinnacle of the evils assailing the hearts of America's youth and its homosexuality.
0: Mm. Yeah, no words. Just talk about wounding and hurting and just bruising somebody in the church.
1: Mm -hmm. And just thinking Mm -hmm. back, I mean, you know, there were probably... 100 kids in that room which means statistically there's between five and ten other kids who experienced the same thing that I did right then which was oh (laughs) um everything kind of just shut down for me at that moment like I could hear that he was still talking um but everything just kind of went like really fuzzy at the edges I couldn't really hear what he was saying um and I just sort of sat there feeling like his words were just pounding on me like you know like, bricks raining down, um, yeah, I I mean, it was
0: attacking the essence of who, who you were, and mm -hmm. I can't even, I can't imagine,
1: Mm -hmm. and this is, like, again, I'm 17 and gay, there's, I know literally no other gay kids, like, there's no other gay kids that I know of at my high school, um, we didn't have a GSA, you know, we didn't, we didn't have any, the only other person that I knew of that was my age and gay was Matthew Shepard, yeah, Um, and he, he was already, you know, dead. And, um, so this, this, like this sense of complete and total isolation of like, not only am I being attacked, but I don't even know who I can turn to for like consolation, comfort, connection, just someone else to grab onto and be like, we have to get out of here.
0: And at that point, Jesus might've been who you had, but I'm sure that made you start questioning like, golly, I mean, maybe not maybe the church and Jesus don't want me either. I mean, right. And yeah, so you rush out and go to the bathroom and then what happens next is more her on top of that. So share a little bit about that if you don't mind.
1: Yeah. I stood up and left. Um, it, which was like you did not leave during sermons, you know, like mm-hmm. your leg had to be falling off um, in an art, with arterial blood gr- gushing for you to be justified <laughs> in leaving worship. So I left and I went to the bathroom um, to just like try to get a hold of my emotions. And I just, you know, start sobbing as I'm in there alone. And um, one of the youth leaders, um, so like a lay leader, not somebody who's in um, official ordained ministry comes in and finds me. And she, um, starts talking to me and saying, like, okay, well, Satan must have put some kind of sin on your heart to make you leave worship, and I'm like, oh, I'm, okay, I didn't say anything, you know, I just kind of stood there, you know, tears streaming down my face, Um, we always took off our shoes to worship, so I'm barefoot in this, like, church bathroom, you know, with the tile and everything, just trying not to think about how many bacteria there are in there, and she just starts telling the story about, like, you know, when I was your age, I was tempted to, and she's telling me this whole convoluted story about when she was 15, how she'd make out with girls to, like, attract her boyfriend or something, and I'm like, okay, first of all, you have no idea what you're talking about, and second of all,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: what? Mm -hmm. And she, you know, just continues kind of this, it's the same sense of like, everything's kind of foggy. I don't really hear what she's saying. I just get the gist of like, who you are is an abomination to God. Yeah, Doesn't matter. Like, it's not about, you know, dating or kissing or holding hands with a girl or planning to marry one one day. Like at this point, I don't have any of that concretized in my mind. It is literally just because I identify as homosexual that I am deserving of this kind of conversation yeah
0: you are not like I mean you're not you're a really you're a quote good kid you're not even and for her to say like oh because you know you want attention or I went through that too like that just so You're mm. yeah, I, yeah. I, again I just almost isn't speechless I'm sorry that this is what you had to live and and when I'm listening to you though I'm thinking also like we could think oh well that was then so glad things have changed yeah no. but that's it's- not the case I mean, how many churches would this still happen in today? A lot of Mm -hmm. them. And that's a lot of the message that you still hear. So this is what still happens today in Mm -hmm. so many churches. And how do you you proceed from there? I mean, you still had in your heart that you wanted to be, I mean, this is who you are. You want to be a pastor. But my gosh, the church just wounded you deeply. So So how do you leave and proceed from there?
1: (laughs) Um, So she concludes with, you know what you have to do. You have to Mm -hmm. say the sinner, you have to say the sinner's prayer and ask Jesus into your heart and reject this lifestyle of sin. And I remember just sort of blinking at her, like, I don't under, like, I literally did not understand how she was making these connections. And, um, so she, she says that, she goes on another spiel for another two to three minutes and then finally looks at me and says, what do you want to do, Emmy? Mm -hmm. And it's clear that I'm only given one possible answer, right? Like, I have to say, I want to confess my, like, sin and say the sinner's prayer. Mm -hmm. And, um, You know, I don't actually believe in time travel, but if I did, I would believe that I have gone back in time from now and possessed my 17-year-old body at that moment because I don't think I had the strength and resolve to say this at 17. But what I did say, and I still consider it a miracle, is I looked directly at her face and I said, I want to go home, and I left. Mm. And I've never been back um, to that particular church. And I was just like, nope. There is like, I don't fully understand the theological or scriptural interpretation position that I'm in, but I know that what you are teaching is wrong I know that what you are teaching is abusive I know that what you are teaching is wounding I am out I am not gonna stand here for one more moment and and allow myself to be wounded by this bad theology um, and that was so brave as a seventeen year old I mean yeah I, I have to be thankful for I guess stubbornness and I you <laughs> know at this point I have to really attribute it to Like I said, I don't believe in time travel, but I do believe in the work of the Spirit. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I wonder if like that was a moment in which I was so desperate that I was open enough for something else to guide me rather than just my own stubbornness, Um, but that my desperation allowed me to cling on to the true message of Christ, which is a message of love and mercy. Um, That's right.
0: That's right. And so you go home, and even though you were brave to tell her that, I'm sure that just had to pile on feelings of shame and not being accepted. Mm -hmm. How did you proceed going forward? Tell me how you handled that and how you wrestled, how you ever even stepped foot in the church again. So kind of Mm -hmm. walk me through all that next phase of your life.
1: I got lucky um, in that that happened when I was 17, 17 and a half. And then when I was 18 was the consecration of Bishop Gene Robinson in the Episcopal Church. Um, So for those who don't remember this, in 2002, um, Gene Robinson was elected Bishop of Vermont in the Episcopal Church. And he is the first openly gay and partnered man to be elected as bishop. And so um, this was a big... I can go into the depths of church polity. I won't. Um, but essentially, uh, just because of the structure of the Episcopal church, his, um, uh, nomination for being bishop had to be ratified by the whole church at a general assembly. Okay. Um, and so that happened in 2003 in Minneapolis, which is where I was living at the time. And, my previous youth group minister from the Episcopal Church I'd grown up in called me up and said, You know, they need youth sh- youth chaperones. They're going to be having a children's sort of program, um, but they're going to be having it off site because we know we're going to get protesters. And I saw, again, that really stark dichotomy between, you know, Westboro Baptist showing up um, to protest Bishop Jean's ordination. And then the Episcopal Church coming round him to say with majority voice, like, no, this is our, this is a bishop who was chosen by wise and beautiful people who has shown his wisdom and capability for leadership and ordination through his priesthood. We are going to follow through and ratify his call to be a bishop. And so I was able to directly see there are still parts of the Christian church that believe in my inherent worth as a human being, um, but that was a very like stark t- turning point to like okay, well. I'm never going to find the passion that I felt in that assembly of God youth group. Like I'm never going to find that same kind of passion among my peers, that same kind of excitement for worship and for scripture. I'm, I'm going to go back into the Episcopal church where there are a lot of really beautiful things, but we certainly don't, you know, shout amen during sermons.
0: (laughs) okay it's not quite as charismatic but, but nope <laughs> right
1: um okay well this is this is my reality like this is the only safe place for me yeah, but and you still, still a
0: place. and you still had on your heart um or felt a call to being a pastor right oh, No, I mean, that did no, no, no you no, didn't no, no, okay no, no,
1: no. i mean yes but i looked at what happened to Bishop Jean. Like, gotcha. Okay. Um, when when he was consecrated, I remember watching the live feed, and he is wearing you know the traditional white alb um, that priests wear as a white robe that priests wear, and it looks just like wrong on him like he's got mm-hmm. these weird sort of shoulder pads underneath it And i remember just being like Gee-, you know like come on we're you know the whole nation is watching this right now and like we're the episcopal church like one of the things we do is really good liturgical dress and like chasubles and albs and all the cinctures and just like can we get this right like why does he look and it was only after that I found out there had been so many credible death threats against him that he was wearing a bulletproof vest. Oh, wow. And that's when yeah. I went, nope, I'm not pres- like, even within the Episcopal Church, I might be safe as a gay person. I will never be safe as a gay priest. I'm yeah. out. I'm done. I'm not going to do this.
0: So even though that calling was there, you just were like pushing that aside, like, Mm -hmm. no way, this is an Mm -hmm. impossibility and I'm not doing it.
1: Nope. Get me a boat and send me for Joppa. Like I am not involved.
0: Wow. Oh, I Emmy, mean. how did you walk us through then how you went from that to now you go to college and you mm-hmm. start still attending church. How did you get from there to there?
1: <laughs>
0: there <laughs> to you're sitting here talking to me as a pastor. <laughs> yep.
1: uh, yeah. So I went to St. Olaf college, which is about an hour South of the cities um, in part because my father being older was sick. And so I didn't want to go too far from home. And St. Olaf has um, long been a Lutheran uh, private liberal arts school and so uh, very vibrant especially in music. I'm now really growing into the sciences which has been really cool to watch as an alum um, but has always had a really strong music program and so I said okay I'm going to go to St. Olaf. I'm you know I enjoy choir. I think I'm going to become a middle school choir director. That's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to change the world. You know like forget this ministry thing. That was a mistake. I'll be you know a gay Episcopalian and I will be a middle school choir director. Okay, perfect. That's safe. There's nothing wrong with idea. that. It's That's a great right. idea. It's a great idea if you can play piano. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and I can, but at like maybe a 10-year-old's level, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, and I'm terrible at theory, like I don't know why, but it just never stuck, and so I was really struggling in my first semester of like, because the music program, you know, they have a good music program, <laughs> and it's very intensive. And so I started my first semester in these keyboarding and theory classes and I was really struggling. And um, I kept getting these sort of gentle nudges from the department chair and from other people in my life going like, I don't think this is the program for you. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I'm required because it's um, a Lutheran college. They require us to take at least two religion classes. And I take, uh, I think we did uh, the Hebrews and the Greeks. And then we also had... uh, Romans and Christians, I don't remember what it was exactly, but like I am immediately in love with these classes. Like, oh my gosh, give me more Bible study. Give me more like study Bibles with notes in the margins. Teach me more about the Hebrew and the Greek. Teach me more about theology over 2000 years. Teach me more about like, give me Augustine's autobiography and let me read it. And um, I'm realizing if I like this so much, and I'm struggling so much in the music program, this might be a problem. And at the same time, um, you, know, I, you know, I kept stubbornly insisting that I was Episcopalian. Um, like I was very used to being different. So I'm gonna be Episcopalian at a Lutheran school. And that's, you know, that explains why I'm so different and separate from people. And there was an Episcopal church in town. I just never made it down for Sunday morning because it's college, you know, you don't wanna wake up and have to actually roll out of bed any h- earlier than you have to. And I started going to the campus chapel. Um, which is this incredible space of 18 to 22 year olds who want to be in worship who want to be in um, a liturgical worship like the worship that I'd grown up in, but one with these really vibrant um, and relevant sermons, you know, talking about the the messiness of scripture and problems in interpretation and historical analysis. And yet it still has something to say to us today. These incredible um, stained glass windows, this incredible music program where the choirs, you know, one of the the five great choirs on campus is singing in um, chapel every Sunday. And this, just vibrant, vibrant space that felt to me um, like a union of, you know, the good theology and well-done liturgy that I'd grown up with in the Episcopal Church, but then the excitement and passion that I'd been longing for and found in the uh, Assembly of God youth group. And so I was like, oh, crap. Mm. (laughs) Jesus isn't letting me go. He's still... (laughs) He's still and, calling. Yeah. So I went to the campus pastor and I said, um, so two things, I think I want to become a Lutheran and I think I'm called to ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, I mean, this was over several months of, all right. There were a lot of really important like moments in my experience, but that was, that was when I finally said like, okay, all right, fine. I'll sign up for this Lutheran thing and I'll sign up for this ministry thing. And I switched to a religion major And was confirmed as a Lutheran and have been on that trajectory ever since.
0: So at that time, did the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, did they allow pastors that were in same-sex relationships to be pastors or not at that time? (laughs)
1: Um, there was a really interesting process of having a lot of wiggle room, um, in very specific situations. So if you could find a congregation that was willing to hire you and you could find a bishop that was willing to recognize your being hired at that congregation and you were able to get through seminary prior to that, then yes. So there absolutely were openly gay and partnered, um, gay and lesbian and bisexual, because the church hadn't really started wrestling with um, transgender and non-binary pastors yet. Um, there, there were people who were in long-term partnered, monogamous, same-gender relationships who were in ordained ministry in the, in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, but they were okay. few and far between, and you had to know exactly who to talk to and exactly which process to go through. And usually you had to somehow secretly know exactly which um, geographic area to start in. Okay. So so it wasn't going. to sure answer it was, is no. <laughs> okay.
0: It wasn't like totally. There's no way you could be, but it was going to be way challenging. Exactly. Um, okay. Yeah. And so was that before 2009 or with 2009 that changed? Or are you saying even in 2009 and beyond it was still really hard?
1: No, that's what changed in 2009. Um, okay. Because in 2009, the decision that was made was um, there's no longer institutional institutionally sanctioned barriers to um ordination for uh and this is the phrase that they used in 2009 people who are in publicly accountable lifelong monogamous same gender relationships Mm -hmm. because we weren't brave enough to call it what it is which is a marriage right um so uh instead of having these processes where if anybody found out that you were in that kind of relationship, you could be reported to your professors in seminary, to your bishop, to your congregation. And at that point, you would have your track for ordination pulled. Mm. Now we no longer have those barriers. Instead, what we have is you can be open about it and congregations that are willing to call you don't have, you know, won't be sanctioned by the bishop, won't be sanctioned by the national um, office, won't be, you know, threatened with expulsion from the ELCA for doing it.
0: Okay, which as opposed to like women were allowed to be pastors, but churches had to have like, oh, explain that to me. I'm, I'm doing a really <laughs> bad
1: job. Yeah, no, no, I, I know right. what I want to say, but I'm not saying it. Uh, yeah, when the ELCA started taking um, women pastors, the decision was like every church has to be willing to consider a female pastor for their there you go their pastorate. So when they're looking for a new pastor, if your bishop's office gives you a list and there are female names on it, you can't just send the list back and say, no, I won't take women. Like you have to at least be willing to look at the list. Now there's no like there there aren't quotas, there's no hiring sort of demands. So you could certainly still have in you know ingrained bias against women and we do. But um, at the very least, like churches are strongly encouraged to consider female candidates. Gotcha, okay, whereas opposed to
0: the other, like uh, you don't have to even consider that if you don't want to. Right,
1: you can call your bishop and say, we don't want any LGBT candidates, and the bishop goes, okay. And this is the part, I'm asking you a lot of questions
0: here, because this is the part of our conversation that when I read your book, I was so convicted, and I've even wrestled this morning, do I bring this up or not? But Hmm. I'm going to because I'm going to be really vulnerable here, as I mentioned to you. And I think because I I feel like healing for this and saying we're sorry does take some vulnerability and admitting. And so I'm just going to tell you, I remember this time in 2009. And like I told you, we attended an ELCA church in Iowa, and Hmm. at that time, I was not where I'm at now in my faith as far as evolving and realizing that Jesus accepts all of us. And I remember me and my husband had a huge problem with that ruling and we went to our head pastor and we complained. And my gosh, I just, I can't believe that that's where I was. But again, I was stuck in a very small box of, the only church I went to growing up was a first assembly of God church. And Mm -hmm. that's what I knew. And so this was shocking to me that Mm -hmm. that would be okay. And gosh, I mean, I just feel almost embarrassment that we went to him. That's why I was talking to my husband last night. I'm like, you need to send him this podcast because Mm -hmm. I'm just embarrassed that we went to him and complained about that. Like how close-minded were we? I'm sorry. Like I really, wow.
1: I I see you and, um, I'm going to say more about this, but I first want to say, in the name of Christ, you are forgiven. Mm-hmm. Like for, for and, and so am I, for all of the mistakes and the biases we've held, whether they were known to us at the time or whether they've only, you know, we haven't even had them revealed to us yet. Like this is what... Christ came to do for us is to reconcile the breach, not just between us and God, but between us and each other to help us be able to recognize where we've failed in compassion and love and to step back into it.
0: Mm. Okay, you're making me cry, Emmy. I've never had anybody, I make people cry. They don't make me cry, but <laughs> thank you for that.
1: I mean, That's, listen, I was consecrated to the office of ordained ministry and that includes the office of the keys, which means, um, I was, you know, was confirmed on me. What what's bound on earth is bound in heaven. And mm-hmm. that means it is my job to tell you that Christ has let that go for you. Yeah. Right. All right. Thank you. I'm sorry to, to make you make be a pastor here to me? My gosh. <laughs> That's my job. Okay. I do it all the time. It's okay. okay.
0: All right. Um, I need to get back in my job here and be professional. <laughs> no, but let I, me just,
1: um, I'll spin on that a little bit yeah, because you. I talk about that actually. Um, I have an encounter with somebody like that in, in the book, um, in the sixth chapter um, where I talk about um, wrestling with scripture and wrestling with who God is and who God is for me as a queer person and as someone who's called to ministry. Um, that book starts off with an encounter with a fellow seminarian who yeah. says to me, as, or says to a whole van full of fe- fellow seminary students as his way of introduction, I was the youngest uh, delegate at the ELCA churchwide assembly in 2009 to vote against gay ordination and he says this with pride and I'm like oh get me out of this van like I'm having some flashbacks get Mm -hmm. me out Mm -hmm. and I've had a couple people say to me what happened to that guy what happened to the guy in the van and I think people always want me to tell the story of like he was clearly an idiot and he was thrown out of seminary (laughs) on his butt and now he's just like flipping Mm. burgers and he'll never be no he I deliberately annoyed him into being my friend Hmm. because i was like this is not something i can let stand i am going to show you through repeated exposure in the seminary classes that we have together that i'm a human being and even if you can't legitimize my call at least i want you to see that i am just as capable as you in this seminary process i am just as worthy of getting into this process i can maybe out-preach you if I try. Um, And he is now one of my dear friends. Oh my gosh, Um, just gave me goosebumps. (laughs) He's uh, he's got a beautiful wife and kids. Um, He's off being a pastor in uh, another part of the Midwest in a smaller church in a smaller city that would never be able to call me as a woman and as an openly queer person. Like that church, the congregation he serves is not in that place, Mm -hmm. but because he is, he can, because of who he is as a cis white man, he can go into that space and help move the needle just a little mm. so that they can be a little more of a church that really lives out Christ's invitational welcome for all of us. Um, that, so that's just, powerful. I yeah, mean, he's doing there's hope work. for
0: all of us then. yeah. And I think that is such, I like how you just said that, like moving the needle, like my, uh, just a little bit. And that's what my intention here is. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell one side they're wrong and one right. Like we need to show Christ's love and we need to move our needle way closer to showing his love and acceptance. We can be so judgmental and the church can be so hurtful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what your story does so much of so I could talk to you for hours but um (laughs) tell me and this is like wow this is why people really do need to read your book one coin found because so much of it too is how you came to love scripture and God again while you were in seminary because just because you were in seminary that doesn't mean like okay like I've I've got my mind around this I love Mm -hmm. Jesus like I love the scripture because that was still really hard for you so let's talk a little bit about you wrestling with scripture and Processing that,
1: yeah. Um, so, so one of the ways that I found to protect myself from a lot of the, you know, what we call sometimes in the in the church clobber verses, the six or seven verses that we pull from scripture and 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 throw at. LGBTQ people as like evidence of their abomination, evidence Mm -hmm. of their unworthiness before God. One of the ways that I found to protect myself from that was to have this distance from scripture, right? This is an archaic record. This has historical context. This has, you know, this is a literary work. This is something that I understand as like a museum piece, but I can't have an intimate relationship with it because it's been used to wound me. Like you wouldn't ask someone to have, um, you know, to, to profess love for something that has been used to abuse.
0: Right. Just like with how it has with slavery, with women, all of exactly. us that have been in the margins. Scripture, if you're really going to take it all literally, it's it's really very hurtful. So tell me then, so you first took that stance that you're just not going to love it. And then I mm-hmm. know there was a speaker or somebody that told you that said, what if your job as a preacher is just to love the scripture Scripture in public? And that, yeah, that was, was like hard for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was Dr. Lauren Winter who did... Uh, I always remember Mudhouse Sabbath, and then I can never remember remember her other book that I read. Oh, Wearing God um, is okay. her other book. Okay. Um, she's written a lot, um, but she's just, oh, she's brilliant. She's deeply scriptural, and she has nuggets like that that just like, mm-hmm. oof. And so, yeah. yeah, she said, What if our job as preachers is to love the scripture in public? And I was like, You are out of your mind. <laughs> that is like, what great cishet lady white privilege you have to be able to uh-huh. say that. Like, get out. I don't Uh want to hear this. Right. Have you read the Bible? Right. It's just like, (laughs) you know, what's in there, Uh right? Like there's these, you know, these things that we pull out of Paul and say like, oh, look, Paul says women can't preach in church, even though literally in chapters before in first Corinthians, he's talking about when women prophesy in church, which they're certainly not doing silently. Right. You know, um, where he's got, you know, his conclusion to the letter uh, to the Romans lifts up this beautiful, incredible woman, Phoebe, who's lifted up as a deacon. And if we study um, historical context for how letters functioned in Roman society, if it's like what he's doing is writing her a recommendation letter, and it's likely that she brought that letter to the Roman church and read it to them
0: hmm I Like, oh, oh, oh. I know.
1: Uh, uh, uh. And I know. So I'm like, Lauren, what are you, like, what is this? Like, you know how this has been used to wound us. What are you doing? And um, I think I, I was so angry because I knew she was right. I knew that the relationship that I had with scripture was not sustainable for me. I think it's absolutely um, a, a track that people can take in healthy um, and important spiritual ways. I think it was an important part of my healing journey. I think it's a valid position to take, um, to still be able to have that sort of distance and yet be able to glean things from scripture. But what I recognized was that it was destroying me from the inside. It was wearing down my ability to feel called to ministry.
0: Yeah, because you're not, I mean, you are a deep thinker. You're supposed to teach people this. So there's no way that you can just cope kind of the way that you were. So then what did you do with that? If you thought like, okay, this is not going to work. If I'm going to be fully effective and used by Christ, that's not going to work.
1: Yep. I had some friends who were doing a 90-day Bible reading. So like through the Bible in 90 days that summer. And so I joined in on that. They were doing it out in um, Madison, Wisconsin. So I joined in, you know, through online check-ins. And I went to the bookstore and I bought just a regular Bible, which I hadn't owned for years. All my Bibles were, you know, Oxford annotated with, you know, study notes, the Harper Collins, the Fortress Press commentary. Um, you know, and this was like, this is just a Bible and I just have to read it straight through not as like, this is going to create better devotion in me. This is going to make me a better spiritual person. This is going to cure me of my gayness. Cause that is something that I've heard, um, is that it's, you know, if you, if you just read your Bible more, you'd, you'd, you know, stop being mm-hmm. homosexual. Um, I just, I was like, I have to figure out a relationship with this text that is not what I've had. And so I started experiencing it more like a story in the same way that I've fallen in love with like, Harry Potter or Buffy the Vampire Slayer or, you know, any of those other things that I've immersed myself in where there's a whole other world being created through word and image. And there are multiple voices contributing to it that we receive through the different books of the Bible, the different ways that they tell stories, the different literary types. And these are all trying to point to a relationship with with the God who created the world and who was incarnate in skin as Christ. Right.
0: One of the things in your book that you talk about was kind of an image of you doing this was when Jacob was wrestling. Mm-hmm. And so share a little bit about that, how that's kind of how you felt the process was for you. And that story spoke to you with that process.
1: Yeah. I I mean, that's, I think I probably ran into that story maybe two or three days into the reading process because I uh, had to go through 16 chapters in a day. And um, this story of Jacob who, you know, all throughout Genesis has been this trickster character, right? Like that's, his, his name is Heel Grabber or Supplanter. He's, he's this, um, this character that's always getting the best over other people, always finding the sneaky way around things, and this time he gets You know, grabbed and attacked by this strange figure, um, which sometimes we, you know, it's just called a man in the text. Um, Sometimes we attribute it as like an angel of God. Sometimes we say it's literally God, um, who is wrestling with Jacob. And Jacob gets the upper hand on this stranger who then. bangs him on the hip, knocks his hip out of joint so that he can get the upper hand again. And so for the first time, Jacob's not able to overcome someone else. But then he says to this, this man, I will not let you go until you bless me. Hmm. And for me, that has really reflected so much of what my experience with scripture has been, which is um, it's it's not always something I can put You know, an exact label on. Like, I know that it's man-made. I know the history behind how the Bible came to be what it is when it's sitting on my desk. And yet, we also confess to the fact that we believe there's a presence of God that informs it and inspires it. So it's it's not quite a man. It's not quite an angel. It's not quite literally God. It's something in the mix of all that. Um, It. It comes and I struggle with it. I spend nights weeping and sweating over it. I try to understand to get a grip on it. And even when I can get a grip on it, I often walk away feeling wounded. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the very least, sweaty and exhausted. And yet, I have held on to it again and again and said, I will not let you go until I find a blessing, until I can read this text, this story, this whole Bible, and find out where is the blessing, the good news in this for me and for others. Mm,
0: that's so powerful. And. I'm going to ask you, will you read the chapter in your book that you talk about that? And I think it's so powerful in so many ways, not just a blessing from the scripture, but a blessing from God that can in the scripture seem like such a awful God that Mm -hmm. is responsible for rapes or genocides, but it's. There is still a there's a blessing there, and there's an overarching theme, and I think it's just a powerful analogy that you use. So would you read that in, in your book? Mm-hmm. You share just a little bit about what you're talking about here, how that story and its wrestling just spoke to you. So if you would go ahead and just start on page 117 of your book with this story, sure. and we'll go from there.
1: This was a metaphor that could sustain me. It took me beyond suspicion or survival. It looked beyond, quote, wrestling with the text. It recognized the danger in every time I opened the scriptures, every new encounter with a fellow Christian, every brutal beating that had been given in God's name throughout history. This story affirmed wrestling and its results. It reminded me why I trusted those best who were unafraid to name their own strugglings with the scriptures and the church. We have diverse causes, a variety of experiences, each our own individual traumas. And yet in our many ways, we bear a similar scar, a joint out of place, a blessing with a new name that saw our striving and called it wrestling with God. My family on the margins, queer and trans, but also women, people of color, the disabled, the poor and hungry, the refugee and outcast, my fellow sufferers of mental illness, has known what it is like to wake up day by day in a life that challenges the easy promises of American Christianity, a life that lived even to its best can never overcome the adversity laid before us simply by, quote, trying harder. We know the truth. Sometimes coming face to face with God sends us away bruised and yet blessed. Some of us will walk away forever. There is too much wounding. I carry with me many stories of those who have found no more blessing in the struggle. The church, the scriptures, and God are all too wounding still. It is my responsibility and I believe the church's to bear those stories, to witness to them and face unafraid the truth of what has been done in the supposed name of God we are to honor those stories. To fear and silence them is to ignore the presence of God who meets us not just in glory, but also in suffering, who to give a blessing did not pronounce it from rendered heavens, but whispered out a new name pinned in the dark before the dawn. In that whisper, I hear not just God's blessing for us who wrestle, but a recognition of the strength and stubbornness in our own persistence. There is no promise of safety, such such a promise would be a lie. The faith enshrined in Scripture has rarely been a miraculous preventative against sickness, suffering, or death. But there is a promise of transformation, a change from our past to a future with our strivings not held against us but honored. There is a promise of dawn, of shadow giving way to sunshine, of a new day with no mistakes yet in it, and the chance to claim again for ourselves our own healing and peace. And there is a promise of miracles, an estranged brother with his arms around our neck, weeping for joy that we have returned, our long fought battles with self and God and others turned into a lasting welcome home.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you for reading that. And I, I, like I told you, there were so many parts of your book that I wanted you to read, but that, that stuck out to me for many reasons. But one, when you share that part of your story about being so deeply wounded at that youth group church, and what you said to that lady was, I want to go home, and then how you end that with, there is the place for all of us like to go home. And this mm-hmm. is this is the place, and I just think that that is just so powerful. And I know your story has a happy ending part of it because you you are now married, you are now a pastor at a church. Just talk a little bit about how that. And I'm sorry we're going long here. Do you have that's a few fine. more minutes to talk yeah. to me? I'm sorry we're going way long, that's but I, I don't. I want to do your story justice. I don't want to just like hurry up and let's finish it, which I feel like I'm doing right now. But <laughs> because you do you do share a lot, and that's why your book is just so good because you share a lot about and really honest about wrestling with God and not even wanting to say his name anymore. So yes, you wrestle with scripture, but also God and you're just so honest about that. So through that wrestling, I mean, God just brings you so far and tell me about that moment like were you when you were is it ordained as a pastor is mm-hmm. that right okay and yep, then yep. you have were you married at that time or no uh okay.
1: we were dating and not yet engaged
0: okay but you have her next to you you're ordained let mm-hmm. so tell me like the feelings and how what was flooding your mind and thoughts at that moment
1: oh <sighs> that was an amazing amazing moment um so uh, in the Lutheran tradition and in many other traditions when a, a pastor when a person is first ordained to ministry so uh, for Lutherans' that means there's a congregation that wants to call them as their pastor um, and then they've been through all the other you know seminary and approval by the bishop and all that jazz um, we receive a red stole um, okay. so the the banner that hangs around our necks and it's red for the uh, season of Pentecost for the remembrance of the, the way that tongues descended in flame, you know, tongues of fire descended and, uh, be allowed the disciples to be able to preach the good news in all languages. And, um, my family, uh, including my older half brothers and sisters from my father's previous wife, um, had contributed to the stole. Uh, so they, they'd all, um, helped, you know, get it put together. And my mother, um, my father had passed by this point. Uh, My mother was on my left side and my my wife-to-be eventually uh, was on my right. And they're the ones who held the stole and put it around my neck at the moment that the bishop um, officially consecrated me to ordained ministry. And um, in the Lutheran tradition and in many other traditions, we also practice laying on of hands at that moment. And so to be surrounded by so many people – and so many people in that room who had known me from childhood. We had people coming in from my Episcopal church that I'd grown up in, to know me, you know, people who knew me from seminary, uh, people who'd known me from internship and in other churches where I'd served, uh, to come together and say, with a physical touch, you know, laying on hands on me, and then the circle that went around us where people just kept laying on hands of the person who was laying on hands of the person who was laying on hands, and to say, we are all taking ownership. This is not just a relationship between you and God. This is not just a relationship between you and God and the bishop or you and the congregation. This is a relationship with you as a pastor for a whole community with rippling effects. Hmm. Um, And two, the Lutheran church... Um, in in conjunction with the Episcopal church practices apostolic succession so we understand ourselves to have um, been receiving this laying on of hands and the passing on of ordination all the way back to the apostles which like I think might be a tenuous historical link if we really drill down on it but the theology works for me um, right. this idea that like I am stepping into a role that, Um, broken and messy and faithful, yet doubt-filled and scrabbling people have served for 2,000 years in the desperation that there is something in Jesus that's meant to set us free. Mm. Yeah, that was a good moment. That was a good moment.
0: Yeah, and like I said, that part of your story has such a happy ending, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, being in this world that there's still so many struggling, so many in the LGBTQ community feeling not accepted by the church or wounded or not even going to step foot in the church again. So mm-hmm. that's kind of brought you to the next part of your mission and your story. And how how do you, what do you say to those people that are there right now that have been so wounded by the church and just, <sighs> yeah, where, where do you go with that?
1: Huh. I think the first, you know, the first job for me both as a a queer person and a pastor is to meet people where they are so to not stand where I am and say you know what I've done the healing process I'm happy in my church like get on board do your work and you're gonna be fine like no to meet people where they're at and say like you know what it actually might be legitimate for you to take time off from church right now because if it's just creating more wounds what's the like that's What's the purpose in that? We find no stories in Jesus's ministry that say you know the more someone was wounded by it, the better their faith was. <laughs> like that's just Jesus is all about freedom from like mm-hmm. salvation and healing is the same word. Um, so so when people start talking about like I just can't go back to church yet, I go, yeah, of course you can't like then that's okay. That's, yeah yeah let's let's figure out how to nurture. You spiritually, where you're at rather than me demanding that you cross thresholds that feel impossible. Um,
0: and us that are not, maybe choose to stay in our box and don't, you know, even associate with this world. Like, I just think we don't even know this is going on. And I think we, the church, have to be aware and have to be aware of our wounding. It's going to start with individuals. Ugh, the church is a kind of a messed up system, no matter which one that you're in (laughs) and hearing the stories. I mean, and that's my prayer for this podcast is that people aren't going to just like turn it off because, oh, I'm not going to listen to that. Like we have to hear the stories. We have to hear and see how God is using you. And tell me a little bit and we'll wrap up here shortly because I've taken up so much of your time. But part of your mission now too is the community that you've created because there's a need. People can be Mm -hmm. like, well, why did she? So tell us a little bit about that community that you've created for people that have felt rejected or that are struggling. Tell us just a little bit about that. So not only do you pastor your church, you have another community
1: as well. Yeah, we have, it's functionally called an outreach ministry of my existing church, um, but you don't have to be a member of one to participate in the other. So it's called the Queer Grace Community, and it's meant to be a space centered around um, and led by LGBTQ People who are struggling to figure out what their relationship with Christianity is. A lot of our um, members, people who participate in the community, come from really religious families. Um, some of them are, you know, effectively agnostic or atheists, where they say, like, I don't, I can't believe in anything right now, but I have to figure out what to say to my parents. Um, you know, how do, how do I talk about scripture and, and my relationship with God when I can't enter a church safely? So what we do is we do worship twice a month in the evenings and we also have a Bible study and a game night um, or we'll do sort of cultural events out in the, in the Minneapolis community, just for, you know, socializing together because for so many of us, um, we really just need that sense of connection and that shared story
0: yeah, and you, like you just said, like you have atheists that come, and what mm-hmm. better way to show the love of Jesus? And it's okay if you don't believe, but we just want to show love to you right now. So I just I love that you do that. And there's, like I said, there's so many questions I want to go into, but I think I'm gonna have to have you back because I Great. know people that are listening or have questions that you probably get tired of answering, but no, um, but I would just love to have you back just to, I don't know, maybe talk more scripture and Bible and people that think a certain way and why that might not be the most accurate. I think I want to have you back. I mean, if you will come back. Um, I would love that. I, do, that. I do
1: tend to ramble. I do No, that. I, I mean,
0: this is all part of your story. And that brings me to, we will wrap up, but <laughs> your website, which we'll put a link to, because you kind of have an, you have an encyclopedia, right? That has like a lot of questions and answers where people can, if they have more questions, they can find them too. Tell us where that is. We'll link it up on the show notes. But If, if people want to connect with you and where they can find you and all that.
1: Sure. Uh, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram under. Emmy Kegler, E-M-M-Y-K-E-G-L-E-R, so that's Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter, those are all the same, and then uh, you can find the encyclopedia that I've been working on for, oh gosh, four years now, um, of resources that already exist on the internet and in print around LGBTQ life and Christian faith. You can find that at QueerGrace.com.
0: Okay, and then if anybody's up in Minnesota and wants to visit Grace Lutheran, your website has the link to all of that, too, and... And we'll link up your book, One Coin Found, How God Loves Stretches to the Margins. Again, thank you for being just so honest and open and compassionate, just all of those things. Emmy, I appreciate you sharing your story.
1: I appreciate it so much just being invited on. And I like it's been so um such a gift to hear just a little bit of your story and your journey. I'm so excited for for who you are and who God seems to be sort of like calling you into as you continue to to grow into the fullness of what god has ordained for for each of us and i i'm so excited for you as a mom too like i'm just so excited for your kids um so thank you so much for inviting me into this and into the whole podcast universe you're creating thank you emmy
0: Thanks for joining me today in this space of sharing stories. As I said in my conversation with Emmy, my goal with this episode is not to convince one side or the other who's right and who's wrong. I don't think that's our role as Jesus followers. Rather, my goal is to share stories that point to Jesus and show each of us how God's love stretches to the margins. The table is big enough for all of us, and the Lord is working on my heart to show me this table of His is so much bigger and inclusive than I ever thought. I know many of you, after listening to this episode, Are going to have some questions or comments. Emmy has graciously agreed to come back for another episode to talk with me and answer some of those questions. If there's something you'd like to ask Emmy, leave me a message on Facebook or Instagram or email me at herstoryspeakspod at gmail.com. I'll put that link on the show notes for Emmy, as well as a link to her book and her website where you can connect with her and get more information. Thanks for listening and sticking with me today.